Rev it up and welcome to Cars Yeah, show number 2,118. This week on Cars Yeah, we're celebrating the Concours at Pasadera. It takes place August 11th and 12th. It's an event that kicks off Monterey Car Week. This year, they'll be celebrating Ferrari's 75th anniversary. To learn more and get your tickets, go to PasaderaConcours.com. This is Cars Yeah, where you'll enjoy interviews with inspiring automotive enthusiasts. Mark Green is here to provide you with a fuel injection of automotive inspiration. So get in, sit down, buckle up, and get ready for a wild ride here on Cars Yeah. Hello, inspiring automotive enthusiasts, and welcome to Cars Yeah! Today I'm in Salinas, Monterey, California, you know what that means, with a very special guest by the name of Richard Renard. Richard, welcome to Cars Yeah! Do you have any gear, and are you ready to release the clutch? I'm ready, Mark. You are always ready, because you're a uh, past racer, you're a guy that loves cars, you're so involved in so many events in your area. But before I give you a proper introduction, and we talk about your business, about your involvement with the uh, Laguna Seca uh, group, and of course, the Pasadena Concours, what's one little thing that most people may not know about you, Richard? Well, I think, especially since I'm beyond being a young guy and, and had you know a lot of West Coast racing back in the 70s, uh, Probably most people don't realize that uh, our family, from a business first, a uh, nonprofit point of view, but then a business point of view, are deeply engaged in providing homeless solutions in, in housing campuses and things. Well, we're going to talk about that because I really would love to know more about that and share that with our listeners. But uh, you got such a fascinating history. And I'll tell our listeners most of the time when I have guests on the show, I've never even spoken to them. First time we talk is the first time we talk, but we I think we spoke for almost an hour before we started this show. Yeah. Richard and I, with our racing backgrounds, with uh, historic racing, we know a lot of the same people. So this is the fun part of my job is creating new relationships with people that feel like old friends, which is what you feel like today, Richard. Yeah, I agree. Well, let me give you a proper introduction. Richard Renard is the CEO of Rapid Program Management, known as RPM Team, a firm that applies critical disaster response experience to expedite time-sensitive projects. He has spent over 40 years in the automotive industry and 20 years in manufacturing with an expertise in aluminum structures. His focus today is on the nonprofit sector, as he mentioned, partnering with cities to help come up with solutions for the homeless. Richard's past includes 17 years as a club and pro racing driver. He is also the executive director of the venerable Laguna Seca Raceway Foundation that exists to raise funds for the development of the Laguna Seca Recreational Area. Appropriate giving his first race he attended as a boy was Laguna Seca way back when uh, in 1957. RPM is a sponsor as well of this year's Concours at Pasadero. We'll be back in just a moment, but first a words from our sponsors. So give them a little love. They're the reason our lights are on here, and we'll be right back. The most damaging thing to your vehicle's interior is the sun. Harsh UV rays damage your interior over time. They crack your dash, they fade the colors, and the heat makes getting into your favorite ride downright unbearable. My friends at Covercraft have the perfect solution for you. Their quality-made sunscreens are easy to use, take seconds to install, and protect your vehicle while parked in the harsh sun. They fold up easily and store away for those times you don't want to use your car covers. I have one for every one of my vehicles, and you should too. They come in a variety of colors and options, feature an accordion design that makes unfolding and folding them for storage a breeze. Want to give the gift that keeps on giving? Buy sunscreens for all your family members and friends. They're quality made and custom fit for almost any vehicle you may own. Check out Covercraft.com for a huge number of styles colors and options and i've got a really cool deal for you if you use the code yeah 21 y-e-a-h 21 at covercraft.com they'll give you 10 percent off you can thank me that's right 10 percent off with the code yeah 21 covercraft protecting the things that move you most people don't think about their collector car insurance until their annual premium becomes due well why wait and see if there are better options for your beloved rides I didn't. Did you know if you change carriers before your policy runs out, your insurance company has to refund you the unearned portion of your policy premium? I did my homework. I shopped around and I found American Collectors Insurance. They've been protecting collector vehicles since 1976. 
I encourage you to call my friends at American Collectors Insurance. Ask them about their agreed value policy. And if your collector vehicle is on your regular auto policy, you will be shocked at the savings, not to mention the assurance, should something bad happen to your ride, that you'll get what your vehicle is actually worth. Give them a call today for a quote at 866-ACI-YEAH. That's 866-224-9324. Tell them you're a friend of Mark Green at Cars Yeah. American Collectors Insurance. Classic car insurance designed by collectors for collectors. Automotive enthusiasts just like you and me. That's American Collectors Insurance. Give them a call today. So, Richard, let's dive a little deeper in the corner, something you've done many times in your race car. I'd like to start by talking about RPM Team, your company, because this is a wonderful venue. How did this whole thing come about? What is it that you guys do to help people uh, that are homeless and need a place to live? And then we're going to talk more about Laguna Seca Foundation because I wasn't aware of this group and all the things that you guys do there. But let's start with RPM. Well, it started uh, my youngest son is a filmmaker by trade, but he loves the deal. He loves business. And so as he left, uh, he went to San Jose, uh, San Francisco state and their film school did, did the four years and four years came out as one of their top guys. And, but he just started getting into uh, cold calling businesses, you know, the, the bull rings, uh, you know, the, all that kind of stuff. Oh yeah. And he, he eventually went to work for a Canadian company called Sprung. It's a family name. It's like a spring that sprung. And they build these tension fabric buildings for an amazing number of genres. And so he began to work with that. And from that, he inherited some clients who were using these facilities for what we call congregate housing for our unhoused guests. And so he did that. And after about Oh, probably about five years, he became the number one account exec for Sprung internationally, just out of the San Francisco office. And so through through a couple of other situations, he got to a point where he said, you know, dad, we need to start this business. And what he had done is he had pulled together, and I don't know of anybody else that was doing this, so I'm going to be a proud dad and said, you know, he, you know he, he kind of developed this process where he was bringing the client, which could be a city, could be a county, could be a state, could be a nonprofit. And with the uh, with all of the architectural uh, needs, all of the engineering needs, all the disciplines, and then the, then the construction needs, where one of our terms is we take people from dirt to turnkey. Well, lots of people do that, except we do it in it could be in a matter of weeks to a matter of months Wow! where we actually have we're housing, whether it's people or whether it's an endeavor. Uh, my son, David, ended up filling a need for Elon Musk. A lot of people have seen on 60 Minutes where Elon Musk was having trouble with the robots in his Fremont factory on the Series 3. And so he contacted uh, Sprung. That was because David was out of San Francisco and David built a almost thousand foot long, 150 foot wide tension building in uh, somewhere between 11 and 17 days. And they were up and running. My gosh. Okay. Now um, I have to ask yeah. the question because having grown up with a dad who was an architect and how, how do you, I mean, I, I could kind of get the idea of how you build it fast, but how do you work through the bureaucracies of government and codes and permits and how do you get around that you know you're looking for certain expedition or expedite something and and first off everything we do is pre-manufactured so a sprung even though it comes in boxes is still pre-manufactured so if you're looking for something very simple whether it be an airplane hangar or a warehouse or in in mr musk's case you know an assembly line Mm -hmm. you know they put it on a parking lot they lasered it the assembly line in and they began to you know use human assets on a 24-7 basis, and they raised the production of the S from like 350, 500 a week to 3,500 to now 5,000 a week. So, but but where where it speeds up is everything we do is code compliant. So we, we're never abrogating a code. So now it becomes how fast can we move through the, the permit process. Now, something like an airplane hangar or manufacturing may be uh, you just got to get in line and go through what all developers have to go through. But when we build a, a homeless camp where we're using both all of the 
social services are on site plus uh, you know, congregate living, you know, bathroom showers, laundry, uh, storage, uh, animal runs, all that kind of stuff. We're looking for some relief in speed, not against codes, but to maybe relief in speed to permit or even in relief for permit costs because we're looking at a real human catastrophe in, in the homeless arena. Lots of cities, lots of counties have joined the fight in providing waivers to money and waivers to time. Fast track it. There's the word. It's tremendous. What what a cool deal, especially doing that with your son and definitely a proud dad moment. Well, we have two sons in it now. Well, even better. <laughs> <laughs> the family affair. Yeah. Two of our three sons are, are fully in it because David's next older brother took his place at sprung at the sprung office out of San oh, okay. Francisco. Very cool. Yeah. So we've got two of them in there. That's tremendous. Well, hats off to all of you for what you're doing. It's absolutely tremendous. Laguna Seca Foundation, uh, back to a cars. Yeah. Focus here. I'd love for you to share more about what that is, what you guys do. And congratulations for your role there. I guess I should say executive director. I don't think they could have picked a better guy. What's the Laguna Seca Foundation all about? Well, first off, because of various things and wanting to make sure that everybody understands that nobody takes a salary out of the Laguna Seca Raceway Foundation, I'm, I'm considered the director at large. Okay. <laughs> I mainly gab with people. That, that's my role now. All the administrative duties are done by the board members. Mm-hmm. All the fundraising are done by the board members. And every cent that comes into the foundation goes into either a specific project at the track or an enhancement of a project to assist the County of Monterey and, and current management. So I never knew this existed either. Um, I had a call in, oh gosh, you'd get my time right, late of one year, probably 2007. I got a call from uh, a friend of mine who was the uh, Dan Baldwin, the executive director of the Community Foundation of Monterey County. And he said, hey, Dick, um, thanks so much for the work you've done with some of the nonprofits. Because I've been more and more getting involved with nonprofits in general. Uh, over, over a number of years, I probably served about 12 distinct entities at you know different levels, different times. And he said, hey, would you be interested in uh, a part-time position as executive director of the Laguna Seca Raceway Fund? In those days, it was called Fund. And I go, yeah, I guess. What? I'd never even heard of this thing. Yeah. And he threw two names. He threw two names at me. One was Carl Anderson. The other one was Ken Schley. Many people know him as Ken Schley. And Kenny and I used to race Super V against each other oh back in the day. And I'm going, well, yeah, absolutely. And it took a while for us to everybody get in a room. So there was a, with the addition of Bill Reichsmith, who was president. No, Kenny, Kenny was president at the time. And um, so I sat down with with Ken and, and with Carl and, and with Bill and just had a wonderful afternoon. And, and so they said they would put my name forward. And then I sat down because being a nonprofit, um, you, you've got to be voted in by, by the board. And so uh, we had a majority, the good majority of the board. And I got voted into, uh, you know, to be the executive director. Mm-hmm. And so, one of the things I, I really have done two major things. I, I, I changed the name, you know, I proposed the name change to Laguna Seca Raceway Foundation. Number one, it rolls off the lips either. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You, know, you know, those three syllables stop people from going, huh? What what do you do? <laughs> what did you just say? And number yeah. And number two, our accountant was in Fresno. I mean, that's two hours away, two and a half hours away, especially you're way out in the peninsula. So uh, we brought it in-house to, to one of the noted um, accountancy firms here in both Salinas Monterey. And uh, then I began to look at, uh, I spent my first year just really understanding, okay, we have this thing and what do we do with it? And began to try to understand who's our clientele and, and how do we approach people to raise funds. What was interesting is going backwards into the Laguna Seca Raceway, it was founded as a as a, a 501c4, which is not very um, um, popular number because it's it's something I we all could write Laguna Seca Raceway or you know WeatherTech Laguna Seca Raceway we could all write them a check. The problem is you won't get a, a tax benefit. Mm. So what the board did 
back around 1999, we've got some, some paperwork that goes back into the late 90s. They began to create, it went through series, different names, you know, Scramp Improvement Fund, and then eventually Lagoon Sicker Raceway Fund. And they created as a 501c3. That way you could donate money and that way you would get a, a tax benefit from it. And, and, and so in the early days, the Laguna Seca Raceway Fund uh, built the, uh, the scoring tower, expanded uh, bleachers, built the communications uh, facility, which nobody knows about. It's way up on the top of the Andretti hairpin, uh, the now Andretti hairpin, uh, built the cruising cafe and some other things like that. And then when, when the political climate got a little notchy, um, the board just became very quiet. And so what we've been doing the last couple of years is, is really be coming back into the public eye. We've had a, a, a large presence at uh, the Rolex, which we will again this year. We had a large presence at Velocity International. Uh, we've added some tremendous board members to a board that just has given their lives to it. Uh, and unfortunately, we lost uh, Ken Schley here the other day. And so that's oh, that's saddened our board. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. So, but... So what again? What what it's we're we're really chartered to improve the track. I mean, the original one of the original words was the Scramp Improvement Fund, and 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 that's a very viable statement at management at that time to be able to uh, solicit funds, give a benefit if you if you need it, uh, and be able to put that money toward improving the track. Uh, Laguna Seca is one of those probably what are there maybe three places, four places around the world where you have a government and a, a private entity that operate, own and operate a track. In this case, County of Monterey owns lock, stock and barrel. They own everything. And so we've been going through a number of managers. We seem pretty settled right now with, uh, with the AMD Norici group. And so um, we're getting ready at the end of this year to, to shut the track down from November to April to pave it, to begin to build a new uh, start finish bridge. Um, so, yeah, so there's, there's a lot of effort. Uh, we've got some plans that, that we've promoted and, and proposed to the County. And, and so we're always in that uh, negotiation and uh, to try to quite frank, frankly, build trust between the uh, competitors the participants of any event at Laguna Seca and management and the county. It's this troika that has to really come together in a belief that we can all work together without some of the nonsense that's gone on before. Walking a tightrope, <laughs> sounds like in many ways. You know, Laguna Seca is just one of those places that it's kind of been around forever, but the delicate balance between how it's run and the government and people and everything is always is one of those things that you're just like, oh man, just don't blow this thing. <laughs> just keep it going. Well, and I think that, yeah, I think the cachet value is, is very, very high. Uh, Road and Track, if I can say that name, Road and Track <laughs> did a survey of their readers as to your favorite, uh, you know, road racetrack in the United States. In fact, it might have even been racetrack in the United States because I know Indianapolis was in that survey. Laguna Seca was number one. Wow. And if you go around the world, you go around the world and you ask people what, name your five favorite road racetracks and Laguna Seca is generally there. In fact, one of our, one of our uh, county supervisors, he's going to be leaving at the end of uh, this term. John Phillips was in Italy about and he was telling me about three years ago or so, they're way out in the country. Nobody, you know, they may not even have TV out there. And they they were talking with somebody and saying, where are you from? We said, well, we're from Monterey. And the guy goes, oh, Laguna Seca. <laughs> yes. It just shows you the value of the track. And, and when we have the, when we had the FIM uh, motorcycle races, now we have the Superbike. And, and of course, uh, you know, the original historics and now the Rolex, um, we draw people from all all, all the speaking continents. Yeah, everywhere. Yeah. And, and we're not talking about just, we're not talking about just spectators. We're talking about participants. 
Oh, yeah. It's a, just a wonderful venue. That's where I got my uh, historic racing license, uh, was at that uh-huh. track, loved it, uh, raced on that track. It's just a, a wonderful, wonderful place. And I also want to talk a bit about, of course, the Pasadena Concord. RPM, your company, is sure. a sponsor. Um, Rick Barnett's going to be, well, he was a guest yesterday, actually, on the show, but he's been on the show before. It's a wonderful way to kick off Car Week. RPM involved in this. Can you talk a little bit about your uh, your love for the Pasadena Concord? Well, it stems first from loving cars. So, you know, like a lot of guys, we've got some car projects here. Three are done, three aren't. And especially with the uh, with the starting up of, I mean, <laughs> we started RPM in April of 2020. So that does oh. that shows a little <laughs> bit about the logic yeah. logic we carry here at the house. <laughs> and, and so the three projects that we want to complete uh, have been on the shelf, but we have three nice fun cars, uh, two of which we've shown at the Concours, and the third we ran on the, what's called C2C or Costa Copperopolis tour last yes. year oh, yeah. in, in another one of the cars. So those are just a lot of fun. But but Rick and the Pasadera board and the, the a lot of the owners of the Pasadera houses, you know, properties and things, uh, love cars. And for most of your listeners that are familiar with uh, WeatherTech Raceway, the Laguna Seca, we're direct next door neighbors. In fact, there's a road that just runs between the two properties. So it, it's, it's, it's really a natural place to start everything. And, and Rick is, I mean, there's a, there's a, you know, it's a, it's a used up term nowadays, but there is a Renaissance guy who's deep into the art world, loves cars, loves Laguna Seca. So uh, we've been as, as the, as the foundation, we've been, really building a relationship with, with the concours uh, at Pasadena. And for, for us, I mean, I was there originally just as, you know, the fly on the wall foundation guy. Right. But then we saw, we saw a value as to who attend and what we're looking for as RPM. We're not looking necessarily at all for money. We're looking for influence. So if there is somebody who can influence a, a city council member, uh, there's somebody that can, uh, you know, a county supervisor, the governor, whomever, you know, we're looking for influence to be able to present our story for um, the tragedies that we have in homelessness. And so um, for all of that, we've, we've put, you know, some of our money into, into the concours and, and uh, we've, uh, we've gotten some interesting responses. So it's been fun and, and just tremendous people, especially the tour. The tour was an utter blast. And, and meeting such, I mean, there were a lot of Ferraris in this tour because Ferrari was the focus. And and I've never met Ferrari guys like this. These guys drive the bejeebers out of their cars. <laughs> There's one guy that's got over 200,000. I don't know. It's either 218 or 280, some crazy number. He's got this bright yellow 355 and, nice. and he tracks it. And, 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 and he just, and, but they're all that way. They don't, they're not trailer queens. Yeah. Uh, I had a guest on the show here. From Seattle, that's just just one of a hundred thousand miles on his car. Yeah, he just you know these things are meant to be driven. In in the old days, driving a Ferrari like that might have been a bit of a challenge, but nowadays uh, they're very reliable vehicles. Oh yeah, yeah, they really are. It's cool. Well, we'll take a short break. Thank our sponsors. We come back. I want to talk a little bit about challenges, which I'm sure you've been up against. Maybe mentors, and we're going to talk about cars too. So sit tight, keep the seatbelts on, and we'll be right back. You listeners know I've been into car care my entire life. I am so excited to team up with AutoGeek in 2022. AutoGeek.net has been a leading source of auto detailing products, accessories, and expert knowledge for more than 20 years. What started in 1997 as a mail-order catalog company has grown into a multi-website-based e-commerce store that they are today. With a large online presence on its own website featuring close to 100 different brands, AutoGeek has grown to be the largest car care retailer in the country. AutoGeek's wholesale program serves accounts in over 30 countries and its retail sector ships worldwide. Go to AutoGeek.net for the best product selection on the internet today and their stellar technical support. AutoGeek.net. It's where I go for all my detailing needs. That's AutoGeek.net. Did you know that less than 3% of all automotive technicians in the United States are women? You may not be surprised, but you should be concerned because our country is facing a massive technician shortage right now. Skilled, qualified techs are in high demand. 
And we need young women and men to consider these careers as a viable path to a fulfilling life. I've interviewed hundreds of women in the automotive sector here on Cars Yeah, and I know that women make great techs. That's why I support the nonprofit Tech Force Foundation and its Women Techs Rock initiative to ensure women see themselves in the profession, the industry, and the workforce. Learn more at techforce.org today. Linkage. It's a new quarterly publication and website that covers the automotive market, driving, restoring, collecting, and discovering your passion for motor vehicles. Linkage is about experiences, opinions, and values. Linkage is an actual informed, reasoned opinion based on first-hand experiences. A talented Linkage team covers the automotive world, the people who share your passion and mine, smart, considered, rational, and experienced opinions, ones you can learn from and grow. That includes our passion that drives auctions and the collector car market. So come with me and join us on this journey. And be sure to use the code CARS Yeah when you subscribe, and they'll give you $10 off. Boom! Linkage, geared for the automotive life. Subscribe today at LinkageMag.com. So we are back. So, Richard, I want to talk a little bit about, I, I have what's called the challenge question. This is a question I ask all my guests, a huge challenge that you've gone up against in life. This could be something personal, could be something business related, could be something on the track. Doesn't really matter. The real point of this question is a huge challenge that taught you a very, very valuable lesson. So take us on a little bit of a, a rough ride. Well, I think the biggest challenge we had is I had been with my dad uh, we were build, building our own cars. We were building in Formula V in the, those days, and then we evolved into Super V. So we were, he was an engineer, a noted engineer in, in manufacturing, and he, he was just, he loved cars. He raced boats. He raced Model Ts. He was just, an, he was a crazy guy. Everybody knew him as Pop. <laughs> and so we had, out of the three Formula Vs that we built, the three models, two of them were clean sheet where they were just out of his mind. He designed them and we built them. We also built engines and, and we evolved to a point where we could build complete cars and we could do everything on a, on a, you know, a four cylinder formula V or Porsche motor, except for crank and rods. We could do everything, not cam. We always used a long cam. And so we were doing that business. And then my dad passes in 1980, which was a big shock to all of us because he was our, our specialist machinist. He was our engineer. He was our designer. He was everybody would go to him and, hey, what do you think about this? And, and we were an open book. We didn't have any secrets. If somebody wanted to use my engine, I'd give him my engine. Don't get another one. And so we had this nice little business. You know, it allowed us to buy a house and be debt-free other than a mortgage. We had two sons at this time. And, and so we you know, everything was going good. And, and when dad passed, I had a, a couple of gentlemen kind of came in and, and sort of took a couple of his roles in our, in our business. One was Clark Anderson, the Porsche 356 expert. He became my machinist. And, and so at the same time, we, I had sold, um, 90% of the business to, uh, Dan Davis of victory lane. Oh, Dan. Yeah. I've known Dan since I was in high school. Because wow. my dad and I used to go to what was called Formula Racing Association uh, back in the late 60s. Uh, it was a group of all just single-seat race car guys. It was uh, we did, Our meetings were up in Palo Alto in those days. And so, you know, we were, I just knew Dan for a long, long time. And, and he thought he was buying a break-even business. And he thought his business was just storming. And then we entered 1981. And in 1981, everything stopped. Yes, one of those recession things. Yeah, yeah. Guys were guys were making money, but they weren't spending it. So all of a sudden, I didn't have four or five motors to do at the beginning of the year. I didn't even have a set of heads. So so we were struggling. And Dan Dan all of a sudden found a new business venture that looked like it was going to be shot to the moon, and and he was struggling a little bit. And so for the next uh, three years, 81, 82, and 83, it was really a struggle for us. I mean, we were on food stamps. We had people putting gas in our car and food on the doorstep and, and all that kind of stuff. And so finally, and, and another great pal of mine was Don Wester. 
the, the famous Porsche dealer and racer. So he and I had been talking for almost a decade, uh, just as friends. Uh, he was just 45 minutes south of us. And, and so at one point he goes, hey, let's start this business. We were going to develop the final two acres of the Seaside Auto Mall. And so I, I was involved with every step. Uh, it was an Iacona design building and, and all of that. And, and so we were literally over Labor Day weekend. His banker convinced him not to do that. And so I, it's the first time in my life I never knew what I was going to do. Well, we had been working with Saab Automobiles. And uh, I was going to be a single point Saab dealer with uh, a used uh, BMW, Porsche, Mercedes. We had the mechanics lined up. We had everything lined up. And first time in my life, I didn't know what I was going to do. And a buddy of mine, a real good paint, he had me painting houses, taught me how to paint houses. You do whatever you have to do, right? Yeah, yeah, for sure. And then, then it and then it hit me. I go, you know, I really like the Saab automobile. I mean, it's a real safe thing. It's fun to drive, but it's, it's just a neat little piece. So I ended up calling up Saab and I said, hey, would you want, want me to go to work? And he goes, well, I can think of some places we could put you right now. So about a month later, I found myself up in your neck of the woods. We decided to live in Kirkland, Washington, because there were more Saab dealers in the state of Washington and Oregon than anywhere else. I also had Alaska, uh, Idaho and Montana. I had five states, largest geographical, largest geographical area of the country for Saab, but I only had, you know, somewhere it ranged between like 19 and 21 dealers at different times that go up and down. And, and so we had to leave the state of California to find work. And so for us, it was just a, a crazy deal. And we thought, okay, well, let's maybe we'll get to go back to the Bay Area. We, we had a house that we just rented, or maybe we can go to L.A., or maybe we'll go back to Orange, Connecticut. We don't know. Or just let's ride this thing out because racing evidently isn't, isn't going to pay it anymore. And so uh, then a couple of years later, Don Wester called and said, hey, uh, let's, let's get into racing. Yeah, things and finally so, turned uh, a little bit. Yeah, so we came back down to California. We missed San Jose drove right through it and settled in Salinas, and we were the first team to sign up for what was called the American Racing Series, which became Indy Light. Oh, my goodness. And, wow. uh, you know, and the problem with it in those days is similar to today. You're in a terrific series. Uh, you know, it just was a wonderful series, except it ran about 700 grand to run it. You could really only generate about a hundred grand of sponsorship unless you had a paying driver and we never did. So, um, that one didn't last long. I, because Al Holbert was a friend that I'd met through Don, through Don Wester. Uh, I ended up going back to work for Al for a little bit on the Indy car, just behind the scenes, you know, just building stuff and helping with the setup and the, they, Al bought our trailer and all that. And Bruce bought our tractor. And so from there, um, that season was up and now all of a sudden I'm not in racing anymore and, and had to find, you know, another line of thing to do. And, and I ended up working for a small company that we were able to make into a decent sized company down in Salinas where we built light duty equipment for trucks and vans. And it was all out of aluminum extrusions and aluminum sheet, which we didn't do much aluminum extrusion work in racing, but a lot of a lot of aluminum sheet, as you all know, and aluminum castings. I mean, and so it just was. It was a great. It was a great. Uh, I did that for 21 years, and that ended. You know, I kind of came out of that in 2010, and and had already been working in a lot of nonprofit areas, and uh, went full time nonprofit. Wow, a lot of moving and bobbing and weaving and pivoting. <laughs> That's for sure. Yeah, it is. And and just, just to make sure everybody's clear, RPM is not a nonprofit company. It's a for profit company. We're we're an we're an LLC. So but but we came out of I had begun to uh be engaged with uh, the homeless community at the time we started RPM uh for about twenty years. We'd been feeding the homeless. And so it was a natural it just was a natural uh transition to do this full time and actually provide a pathway to become successful in society. You know, you talk to young people these days and we talk about like right now, things are a little 
little spooky out there, the finance world and investment world and all that. And he, I look at like my, my kids and I'll say, Hey, I've been through like four or five of these now. So, you know, this happens. Yeah. Uh, just have your, have yeah. your savings set aside and your landing pad set up and ride it out because uh thing, this too shall pass. But uh, yeah, I remember that time period back in the, uh, the eighties, even in the seventies, we never knew we were, we never knew my wife and I, we didn't know we were in a financial downturn. It just, we didn't even know that it wasn't until we hit 81 that we ever experienced a financial downturn. Then you hit the real estate adjustment of 94 and the, 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 you know, the, the, the communication one of 2001 and on and on. So now we just go cycles. Now we're, we're a little more burnished by the marketplace (laughs) and prepared is the key. Yeah. You know, you shuck, you shuck and jive to be able to try to, to maintain. That's what you do. Hey, let's talk about. One special vehicle in your life, one car that really stands out. What would that be? Well, I think the I think the funnest car we had because we we ran it for a long time um, was our Super V. Um, it, it became very successful uh, when I was a young Formula V driver. I would help a guy named Frank Schulteis, who was a well known tech guy on the West Coast and maybe even nationally, certainly at the runoffs. And so uh, one one night he asked me to help him on tech. And this would have been, I think, 71. Yeah, I want to say 71. And so I was teching and, you know, and I, you don't meet anybody, but you get to hang out. And I was hanging out with the Super V guys because that's why Frank wanted me there. I knew something about VW. And I got to engage both Tom Davey and Tom Reddy the West Clock Lola Super V's. And so that was kind of fun and seeing these guys and seeing the cars. And, you know, they, they certainly were a step up on Formula Fords in the idea that they had more horsepower, but they had, you know, a little wider, they had a six inch wide wheel versus a five and a half. And they just had a four speed and, you know, all of that kind of stuff. And in those days there were no wings, nothing. So in 73, uh, Dan Davis uh, got a sponsorship on the come, as it were, with Cronus, and he went out and bought the ex Tom Reddy car. Now Tom was still driving, and I can't remember if Tom Davy was. I, I apologize, Mister Davy. But uh, so we got this car. And first thing my dad does is he looks at the rear suspension. He goes, "Oh, that's not right." And so he ends up changing the front trailing arm mounts and stuff like that. And and um, so we. We got into this deal and uh, we were partnered with Stephen Griswold, Griswold company. And, and Stephen had been trying to get us to go vintage racing forever. He goes, stop trying to be a professional racer. Come over to vintage side. It's so much more fun. We didn't. We kept trying to be professional racers. <laughs> sure. So, so we got into this car. So our first season were the, the three West coast in uh, professional races. So we had the, the Lola, the Kronos Lola, Super V and Steven had a Tui and Steven really taught us about graphics. I mean, big giant numbers and the cars. So he, his was 13, mine was 31. And, uh, so the first race I started toward the back of the pack and I finished fourth and I thought, well, that's pretty good. And we had a real shot at finishing third, but I improperly welded the exhaust and one exhaust pipe fell off. Uh-oh. So <laughs> we were running on kind of, you know, the sort of three cylinders, uh, but it was it was a real interesting deal, and then uh, you know, that car began to evolve because as guys that had the money to go out and buy new cars each year, we just had the one car. So seventy three, it was just the stock car, the stock Lola, six inch wheels. Uh, we did have a, because they did allow us to use the disc brakes in the back. We put disc brakes on the back. But Elliot Forbes Robinson cleaned everybody's clock because he ran drum brakes on the back. One of the things besides being Elliot. But the drum brakes were lighter, and you didn't you didn't need all that braking prowess at the back end of the car. You needed it at the front. So Elliot just he, he became a great he became a great race mentor for me. Um, he was just a great guy, and he was a great guy. And so anyhow, we ran that seventy four. They gave us kind of a little ability to have a duck bill spoiler back there. They gave us eight inch wheels, and then in seventy five we could run a wing. We got a GRD Formula Three wing. It was real small. We didn't run anything on the front. We just lowered we lowered the nose, and we just kept evolving the car and evolving the car. And 
we'd have guys like Gary Wheeler come by and he goes, he'd look at the car and he goes, why are you putting your oil coolers where they are up front? I go, my dad. And he goes, that's the most perfect place to put them, <laughs> what you just did. And so we get affirmation like that. And, and so we ran that car from 73 through 77. And, and it, it was just, it was a delight to car, a uh, car to drive. It was nimble. You really steered it. Formula V's, you don't steer. It's kind of like a lean and catch. <laughs> and I remember I had, I had run like five professional races with the Super V because, uh, Super V left the SEC and went over to IMSA for a few years. So we're hanging out with the IMSA guys, which was a lot of fun. And so after about five of those races, I got back into my old Super V for two more races and came out of the pits at Laguna Seca, went down to the old turn two and almost spun out because I'm, you know, you steer the Super V because you're sliding it and, you know, you're getting a reasonable amount of lock on the wheel where a Formula V, you hardly move your hand. And so I'm not one of those guys that could really transition quickly. Best guy I ever saw in my day transition quickly was the late Bob Lazier. He was a master. I watched him at, at Road Atlanta, I want to say 71 maybe. Yeah, because, yeah, 71. I watched him get out of a Formula V, run the length of the pits, and jump into a March Formula B car. And, and go out and storm the field. I mean, he was amazing at being, and guy, there's lots of guys that can do that. I'm not. Thomas Merrill, uh, our board chairman's son, is one of those guys. I, I needed at least, I needed at least half a, half a session to figure out what, where am I <laughs> driving? Because this isn't, this isn't working. Right, right. But the Super V was really a lovely car, and, and um, it was really fun to drive. And, and we had done a lot of stuff. We made it a semi-monocoque car. We changed my dad in, in the suspension change at the back. We were able to get zero toe change in the back over five inches of travel. And we changed the front uh, steering as far as what we were allowed by rule. And we were able to get it down to about uh, 64th of toe change over, again, about five inches. Because these cars moved a lot. They had pretty soft springs. We did. Elliott springs were pieces of concrete. <laughs> I mean, you couldn't even push his car down. But, um, yeah, it was, it was just a great car. We won a lot of races with it, won a couple of championships with it, uh, went to Atlanta with it and Reeves Calloway snaked me for fourth and I got fifth, and, Uh-oh. <laughs> and, but it was fun. It was fun being back there in that car. So it, it and it was a well-respected car. Uh, it just, cause it just, we just kept running We didn't have anything else that we had to make it competitive and, and it was very competitive. So that's that's my most favorite car. Yeah, yeah, sounds like it. So you mentioned you love touring. I'm going to enable you to go on what I call an ultimate drive today. I'm going to buy you any car in the world that you can go on a tour in or a road trip in. You can take anybody you'd like, even somebody who's passed, and you can drive anywhere you'd like. What does that ultimate drive look like for you? Mm. I, I'm so stuck in what I call California, which is really Northern California because we sort of write off where you're from as being Southern California. Sorry, folks. <laughs> and, and I think, I think my favorite tour, I, I can't even say one, I, I would be all the back roads up to Lake Tahoe or highway one, um, from, uh, you know, mill Valley all the way up into, up into Washington would be the, the tours uh, cars. Oh my gollies. Um, you even prepped me with that question and nice, uh, <laughs> you know, it would have to be, it would have to be a, a roadster. It'd have to be a two seat roadster. So like, okay. the new, you know, the new Ferraris and the Corvettes and stuff, those are out. Um, you know, I, I, I would love to go back to my first real car, which was my, my dad bought when I was in eighth grade and it was a 1955 Corvette, a real V8. Only this one had a four-speed when we got it, and uh, that was a car that I got to autocross in starting when I was a, a junior in high school. He let me autocross it because we had we basically used all the competition parts over the counter. We had center metallic brakes on it. We had everything on that thing, and it was it was fast. It was real light, but we ended up restoring it, so it really was a beautiful car and uh, something like that. Yeah, you know, an older Corvette two-seater. You had the trunk back there up through 62, so you could actually carry stuff. 
uh, once you got into the 56, my dad then went out and bought a 57. So he had to roll up windows, locking doors. So yeah, as, as rough and bumpy as those things <laughs> were, um, I probably, you know, I'm, I'm such a history buff on cars of my era. I don't know a whole lot about the thirties, but I know a lot about the fifties and sixties and seventies and stuff. So probably, probably a Corvette, probably cool. any of the solid, any of the solid axles, probably and because I'd want my wife to come with me, it would at least have to have a reasonable working top and a roll up windows. So that lets out all the 53 through 55s. Cause those were terrible. They had side curtains and horrible tops and, you know, and not door handles on the inside. It looked like somebody, you know, French the whole car, but that's the way they came new. And so, yeah, it'd have to be like 57. Uh, it needs to be, even though I had fuel injection once on, on our car, I'd rather keep it with carburetors and a little easier for me to work on. I can <laughs> adjust a Rochester injector, but I don't know enough about it to fix it. Yeah. How about a great book you'd like to share with our listeners? One of the things that that I got from my dad is, um, was Lawrence Pomeroy's The Grand Prix Car. And it was a series of two books that Lawrence finished. And then he was doing the third when he passed and LJ, I don't never get all his letters right, set right, finished it. So it's a three volume set. And I gave that one to my youngest son. My youngest son's the car guy. Uh, the, the two other uh, guys, you know, they like cars, but it gets them from A to B. But David's, he is a real car guy. And so um, I gave gave him those sets. But that's a wonderful set of books. I don't know what they cost to buy nowadays. Uh, my dad was a real Anglophile, so he'd be buying all this stuff. We used to get motor and auto car and things like that out of Britain. And so he began to buy these things. And they have these huge fold-out phantom pictures, you know, where, where you can see all the guts of a car and all the way back from, you know, the earliest Grand Prix cars, what was considered a Grand Prix car, like the Peugeot or the Fiat's and all the way up until, uh, around, I think set right finished around 67 or 68. So from a car point, from a car point of view, that's, that's my favorite book books. Sorry, but my favorite volume. First time those have been rec recommended here. So that's a new one, which I love. Richard, you've taken us on a fun ride today, and I'd love to ask you before I let you go for some parting words of wisdom, inspiration, maybe a mantra or a success quote you could leave us with. Well, I think two things. Um, you know, for me, from a car point of view, you know, my center has been Laguna Seca. I got to I got to watch Pete Lovely win the first race. My brain got fried on knowing this is what I had to do when I watched the scarabs of uh, Day and Revent Low and the Ferraris of Ginther and Von Neumann the next year in, in you know the October race of '58. And it was the first place I ever worked uh, as a volunteer for the SCCA. It was the first place I raced as a licensed SCCA driver. It was the last place I raced as a SCCA FIA rated driver in Can-Am. It was uh, the last job I ever had with racing because uh, I worked with Al just uh, into the introduction of the Porsche IndyCar in 87. And now to come back as, as, as being associated with the track and associated with the foundation, you know, for me, that's, that's just real special time. And, and the track is always at risk because it is the five county supervisors that declare its its ultimate uh, victory, and we want to see the track raised to the value that the participants experience driving it, but we want to see it raised to the value of you know, being at Monaco, being at Coda, being at, being at now at Silverstone, not the way it was back in the sixties, but being, we're still stuck back there. Mm -hmm. You know, the track is from an amenity point of view, it's really still stuck back in the early sixties when Moss and, and, uh, you know, Graham Hill and Jim Clark and Bonnier and, and Phil Hill and Gurney and, you know, AJ Foyt and Parnelli Jones, when those guys raced, really early on the amenities 
have never changed in any kind of a cohesive way. And that's what we want to want to see happen because the county now realizes that, you know, the AT&T Pebble Beach, Laguna Seca, the rodeo, the, the air show, these things bring an immense amount of money to the county that is, is used to benefit the citizens. And we want Laguna Seca to be primary in benefiting the citizens of Monterey County and benefiting all who come to enjoy this, not just the track, but the ambiance of the whole region. There's 40,000 acres of viticulture in Monterey County. It's huge. There's, you know, and everybody knows about Salinas and lettuce and all that. And everybody knows about Monterey and the value it brings. Guys love coming to Monterey just as Monterey, Carmel, Double Each and all that entails. And now you've got this track. And so there's, you know, there's always a lot of rumors and innuendos and going, going on, but the track produces a tremendous amount of, of fiscal viability. But we want this thing to really be the number one racetrack in the world. And the guys on our board absolutely believe it and are working hard toward it. And so that's why I'm still hanging out with these guys. I mean, I love the place. It's a great place to be. It's a great place to drive. It's actually, I've never raced on the new track. When I started racing there, there were no guardrails. You could crest turn one and see the bridge. Yikes. Um, (laughs) You know, I mean, we had hay bales. We, you know, it was, was kind of, you look back now and people probably really thought we were crazy, (laughs) but it, it, it remains, it remains one of the top driving experiences worldwide, even with the new configuration, just got more turns. Exactly. So it's, it's, you know, for your listeners, if, if, if you want to be part of that, you can be part of that through the foundation. There you go. I'll make sure I put links to the Laguna Seca Foundation and to RPM team and, of course, the Pasadera Concours on Richard's show notes page. And uh, remember that uh, the Concours Pasadera takes place August 11th and 12th. It kicks off Monterey Car Week. And, of course, uh, the Laguna Seca Racetrack is going to be hosting their historic races again. This year, uh, last month, we had uh, a whole week of people from the racetrack out there on the show. So uh, go get your tickets. I'll put links to everything. Hopefully we see many of you listeners along with Richard and I out at the historic races this year. Richard, thank you for bringing some historic relevance to the track, sharing your life. What a fun journey you've taken us on today. Until you and I talk again, I'll see you down the road. Well, I'm going to stop you real quick because drop by the Racer and Laguna Seca Raceway Foundation garages at the Rolex reunion. Come and meet me. Absolutely. I'll be there too. It'll be a lot of fun. Thanks, Richard. All right. Take care. Thank you so much for joining us on today's ride here at Cars Yeah. Drive on over to CarsYeah.com to find show notes and inspiring automotive fun. Download your free copy of Filler Up a fun book filled with gorgeous photographs of fuel filler fun, including quotes from more inspiring automotive enthusiasts. Download your copy today, and we'll see you next time on Cars Yeah!